Den unge mand, han er revolutionær. might help to spell uh, certain things out. I mean, Johan uh, has evolved from a uh, slightly or very di- disappointed Marxist to uh, a now even more disappointed, more vulgar Marxist, probably. Uh, <laughs> I say that in the best sense, Johan. But uh, uh, myself, I've gone from being a, a slightly conformist neoliberal. I mean, uh, I, I found one of the most interesting passages for me in the book was when you talked about the, uh, Richard Dawkins and the, the modern understanding or lack thereof, of religion. And I sort of very much picture myself as an 18-year-old undergraduate in Uppsala University and being the sort of pretentious person who goes to university and expecting it to be Bright's Head Revisited or, or you know, the, the, the grand cathedrals of, of liberal academia uh, of, of, of <laughs> yesteryear and sort of, uh, you know, reading Dawkins and, and, and all that and, and uh, actually stomping into these institutions and, and trying to, you know, be... be very naive about it and very much finding out the hard way that, you know, sorry, uh, we don't do that anymore. And if you want to do something, you have to be slightly less naive and slightly more conformist. Happily enough, I, 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 I majored in, in business instead. Probably wasn't the best idea for me because I'm slightly even more uh, disappointed in, in the sort of neo, neoliberal uh, right-wingings of my own country than I, I might be in, in certain postmodern aspects of, of, of academia. But I found it very interesting that the sort of Dawkins new atheist view of humanity and sort of very materialistic and, and, and very uh, oriented towards a sort of not only materialist, but very straight-jacketed and toolbox view of the human psyche and desires sort of explains a lot for me. Because as a Swede, you know, you talked in the beginning about Swedish uh, cosmopolitanism. And the sort of slightly xenophobe vibe Sweden at least had to it, and I I'd agree with that because Sweden used to be, and I mean it's always been facing towards the we've never been you know a hermit kingdom of any kind. We've really been a slightly uh, less cultured people than 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 many other great cultures of the continent. But the the interesting part is. As I think is the case in Germany, that you know, engineer uh, and and really the national sciences and, and, and engineering, the STEM subjects have been of of the highest prestige uh, in this country, and and sort of have very much promoted and uh, a sort of you know uh, engineering and and uh, materialistic minded sort of people. And the interesting thing is when that collides with the Middle Eastern immigrants or the Southern European immigrants or a person who doesn't have the sense that, you know, that we're, we're all Protestant materialists here and we, we don't have a feeling for myth or religion or I think this is the, 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 the perfect word which you talk, uh, talked a bit about, sacred. We don't yeah. have a fear for the sacred. Hence, we can't understand most of the myths and even probably less of the history uh, and, and less the poetry or the literature. And I think it's a great tribute to, to, to the book that you spend a lot of time on the literature and the poetry and the playwrights of various eras and, and, and really sort of re-texture 
uh, through Western civilization on, on this very topic because I have a feeling that uh, a lot of people who who might not have read this book really would benefit by, by doing it because it really gives you something to you know that the Western civilization is not you know only the sort of philosophical achievements but it's also a sort of spirit in a sense and, and I think that's very much highlighted and 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 we're very much disconnected I feel nowadays deficiencies in both from people who are materialistic and atheistic but also from literally theory literary theory which you delve into quite a bit as well because people don't have a connection to literature and hence cannot understand you know anything mm. that's not happened in the last maybe 30 years yeah I think that's a very important point uh, you emphasize, and thank you for your kind words. Um, the um, the idea of the sacred, um, and of, and I think I say, is it in the introduction? I think it's in the introduction where I say that the book is also a. I, I point out a lot of weaknesses in the West, but at the same time, it's also a love letter to the West, um, because um, I bring together or try to bring together so many things that I think are are beautiful about the West and, and are, should be an object of reverence. And I think that's what people like Dawkins don't understand, is that when we talk about religion, that this is a much broader concept than he and his uh, fellow atheists give it credit. I'm an atheist myself, by the way, so I'm not you know trying to proselytize, uh, but, one, uh, but he and his uh, fellow militant atheists, maybe I should say, what that, that they fail to understand about religion is that it's they, they fail to understand what religion properly itself is, that it's not just the worship of some magical man in the sky, but that it's also that a very strong part of religion is reverence. And reverence can come in many different forms. Now, when somebody, when, when a religious person reveres God, well, and that's what somebody like Dawkins doesn't understand, he doesn't just revere God. He reveres everything that he, fe- that he believes God has given, mm-hmm. which includes family, safety, uh, a nation, uh, food, uh, shelter above his head, uh, a tradition, classical music, everything really. So part of the reverence of God is the reverence of those things. And so if you take away uh, from people uh, that sense of awe, really, I think awe is a good word also in this context, that sense of awe for the sacred that a religious person has, so much falls with that. It's not just the magical man in the sky who falls, but so much else collapses as well. And this is what, what Dawkins and Sam Harris and such people don't understand, that you cannot take a concept like religion and, and neatly separate it out from society and expect everything else to remain exactly the way it was. In order for a people, and, and you mentioned, uh, Carl, um, the, the, what, this, what this has to do also with, uh, with dealing with, uh, with foreigners and so on and, and, and external uh, circumstances, a, a people will only stand up for its own traditions if it has an awe for these traditions. And when we talk about awe, we don't, you know, it, it, that's not... That does doesn't just mean reading uh, Strindberg or Selma Lagerlöf in school for a you know for a for a high school reading assignment or something. It involves living with these uh, authors, being grateful for them, and really appreciating the tradition that has been bequeathed. And so much of that, and this is because we are as a species, we are, human beings in general crave the transcendent. Mm. And I say this as an atheist, right? So again, it's not that that I that I believe literally in in religion. But we have to understand that there are many different ways of describing the world, not just... Uh, I, I'm a materialist philosopher. I, I think that really just the physical exists, but we still recognize that the transcendent, our, our drive toward transcendence is always there because we always want there to be more than what we can see right in front of us. We always want 
to strive for that which is beyond ourselves. And this is even why people, uh, I mentioned the Hegel's law of the heart earlier, this is why orcophobes and, and, and woke people and so on, this is why they fight so fanatically for their uh, silly beliefs, because they strive, because they desire the transcendence, because they desire to go beyond themselves. It's just that unfortunately that desire has been directed towards noxious ends. But it's the same desire uh, to go beyond oneself and to rise to something higher. And if you take away the sacred, that sense of reverence, that sense of awe that is associated with God, then that sense of awe and reverence will start to decline uh, regarding other aspects of society as well. And then one will not, then when an external enemy finally does come around, one will not, one will no longer have the, uh, the stomach to fight for what one believes. And this is why um, religious fanaticism, which of course can also be, be used for, for very uh, negative ends, of course, but this is why someone who fights someone someone who fights religiously is much stronger than someone who who uh, simply uh, uh, fights for his next meal or whatever the case may be, uh, because we do desire the transcendent, and that's why atheism uh, is um, it goes hand in hand with orcophobia because with with the collapse of God, the collapse of awe, and the collapse of reverence uh, go hand in hand, unfortunately. And some people can abandon God, if you will, and still have that sense of awe and reverence, but quite frankly, most people cannot. So. You mentioned, I think you have a, a passage about, uh, I think, Orwell's Notes and Nationalism. And, and I think it's interesting because I think Orwell sort of very much reflects on intellectuals of his era, especially British socialist ones, of which he was one himself. And he, I, I don't remember if this was in Notes and Nationalism or, in fact, uh, The Lion and the Unicorn. But I, I remember a passage when he says, you know, the, the problem, you know, these people, or these intellectuals will never rise to to stand for the British national anthem, but they will stand for the Internationale mm. or, or you know, they will, they have a transferred sort of sense of allegiance towards something else, something sacred. And I think you can see this in liberal internationalists nowadays when, especially in Sweden, you know, uh, Swedish flag is, is, is not a symbol of reverence, but a lot of Swedish liberals have a sense that, you know, maybe five years ago, it probably was the Kurdish flag. Now it probably is the Ukrainian flag. And, and I say that as a, as a supporter of the Ukrainian cause, but still it, it, it's sort of interesting to see the transference of the sort of uh, lost limb. Uh, and I think the same can be seen, uh, you know, in, in the in the term sacred. You know, people will not revere their national flag, but they can, re they can revere a flag of, say, Kurdistan, or Ukraine nowadays, and be right. very, very sort of transferred patriotic or nationalistic about these countries and their cultures, especially when they're under threat. And also, I think the sacred has gone away from a sense of home and God, and sort of maybe taken sort of root in the individual or sexuality or identity in our culture, where you have the, the sacred thing is, you know, your sexuality is, is really sacred and 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 you're sort of 
self-expression in a sense. So we've sort of, you have the phantom limb sort of syndrome of people, you know, wanting to feel reverence for something, but that's only transferred towards the, the new shiny thing. And the new shiny thing for about 50 years has been, you know, these things. That's my take at least. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, yeah, I think it's in the notes on nationalism where he talks about transferred uh, nationalism. And in fact, when you mentioned the example of Ukraine, this has been a bit of a pet peeve of mine um, as of late. Uh, certainly, I'm, uh, I am disappointed in those uh, Republicans here who, uh, who take Russia's side. Uh, I think uh, Russia's behavior has been egregious, but uh, I don't have a lot of patience either with the, with the uh, Americans here who will stand for the Ukrainian national anthem, but would never dream of that ending for the Star, for the Star Spangled Banner which I think is maybe a little misplaced priority. So as you say, yeah, I think the this idea of uh, of transfer that we still have this we still have the the need to uh to be a part of something bigger, to be a part of something uh, beyond ourselves because because modern life can be mundane. This is something that um uh, Fukuyama talks a little bit about in his uh, end of history. Mm. Not at all a Fukuyama fan and I criticize that book as well uh, in mine but he does what he does says, say correctly um is that we suffer from boredom in modern society which I think is correct and then of course at least to someone like Steven Pinker who has no imagination whatsoever to criticize him for that because he doesn't understand <laughs> what he means by boredom but we we do have a certain sense of ennui and and yep. uh, it does lead uh, as you say Carl to um to kind of want to latch on to something and to be a part of that, of that, of whatever that is, of something greater, uh, Ukraine, for example, or whatever it may be, sexuality, uh, certainly, uh, it's another one. The internet, also social media, play a part in this as well, because now, of course, we all have. There's a community, quote unquote, community for everything, right? There's the trans community and the gay community and the this and that community, and of course, through the internet, one finds one's own particular group. And that also helps with a sort of neo-fragmentation that, where that particular group that one is in becomes much more important than the larger society or, or than the nation. And, uh, and that sort of identity or, or group identity um, uh, and transferred nationalism, to use uh, Orwell's term, is, a, um, is something that is kindled also or, or certainly encouraged by our desire for, still in some way, our desire uh, for transcendence. So uh, yeah, so I think that's a good point. On, on the issue of, of 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 where people place their transcendent faith, in a way, I, I wanted to first of all address this, like for you, Benedict, on a personal level. Um, before we go back to what perhaps can be a concluding comment here on, uh, no, let's do the other way around. Well, let's finish with the personal. But okay, so my my main question here then, Carla said earlier that I'm some kind of. Uh, a disappointed or uh, Marxist. At relaxed. least that's my background. Relaxed. Relaxed. I was actually Rel wondering. I was actually wondering about that. I got the impression. You'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I was was the impression that Carl has gone a little bit from not to the left, but uh, in a direction from right to left, and you, you one has gone a little bit in the other direction, or is that? Uh, and you say so you're sort of meeting now in the middle somewhere. Very confused. Dan's in the middle for sure. That's a very I'm American sure. way to say it. I think. I, I think oh, maybe. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> I'd say this. I've been hopelessly Americanized. I, 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 and I don't blame you for it. But I, I think the problem with we have with this sort of you know uh, one axis of, of political spectrum is you know it sort of lacks well nuance for one. Well, but but also it's sort of rigid in the sense that it sort of forces you to 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 be on the, the political spectrum in a sort of party policy sort of uh, mm. way. Uh, and I think right. I've, I've removed myself from party politics. And, and, and in that sense, I've moved left in, in a lot of 
sort of uh, issues that was dogmatically, in a, in a U.S. sense, right wing. But you know, in, uh, on other sort of cultural issues, I think have gone to the right. So, so it's sort okay. of interesting because I think this is a move, and I think both of us sort of represent this in a sense that a lot of people who used to have who, who sort of fancied themselves as being, you know, intellectuals or being well-read or into politics or whatever, sort of now have ended up being very disgruntled with especially politics especially party politics and especially not finding a home and and mm. the sort of outlets you you both frequent are uh, sort of evident on this because they are not the sort of institutional very partisan sort of uh, outlets uh, they're sort of catering to uh, a sort of person who maybe you know has strong feelings about values and politics and principles but they're not party machine people and and they sort of can have two thoughts in their head at once they can be very skeptical about the democrats in the u.s for instance and the and the work people but they can also be you know not as enthusiastic about people like orban and putin that that some people on the right wing and hence you know i think we're trying in this podcast to sort of triangulate or sort of point by point navigate towards somewhere but we're not you know I I don't I don't see you as a right winger. I don't see me as a as a left winger. But I, I think we've both sort of moved to each other's direction via dialogue mm. for fifteen years. But this is not what anyone would recognize as center. <laughs> right. So, I understand. Yeah. I think my response to this is much more vulgar than with Carl's. <laughs> that that is kind of like we are Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers in uh, Predator <laughs> uh, meeting in the bar. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for being out. I was just wondering if you made me black just there because it's sort of triggering. I, I love Carl Weathers, the, by the way. I was going to say who, who, who is who, but yeah. I guess the important part is that we both tried to train our biceps and go into the jungle uh, and look for the predator. So No, I, I remember seeing on, on you once uh, Twitter handle that uh, he is, uh, that you're radicalized by a manifest pardon. So I wasn't sure if that meant that there was some nefarious left-wing influence uh, somewhere that uh, was uh, pulling you in that direction. There's uh, definitely some kind of specter haunting the debate, right. for sure. But I think, uh, I mean, of course, we can sit here and, and discuss uh, why you 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 um, go after Marx and Marxism in your book. Uh, but mm. at the same time, Kalle has um, accused me many times of asking anyone we're talking to, why aren't you a Marxist? I'm going to skip that. Okay. You said that's, that's coming hats. back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but coming back, per- perhaps I think more crucially here is, is to the, the helical view of history is that given given them i don't want to over exaggerate but i also don't want to belittle what, what's actually at stake here we're talking about like systemic issues threatening societies not just like on an economic or envir- environmental level but i'm talking about like the social dynamics of how you build uh, communities as a whole so what is your sense of any possibility of of a reboot or at what level you actually would find a possibility of creating viable alternatives. I'm not going to talk about that in terms of political platforms, but if there's one thing, the second point that I keep harping about is the possibility of 
reinvigorating uh, politics today through perhaps more local political alternatives. Obviously, that's from a Swedish point of view. We have our unitary state. One way of of bypassing uh, corrupt political instruments and parties is literally to bypass them to go down on like the local or municipal level. Obviously, the US can be different in this regard. But I'm I'm struggling here with uh, finding a level at which people can interact without succumbing to like nihilism or either either become fatalistic in their own sense of of politics but also without necessarily demonizing your enemies so i'm is reboot even a possibility at some level or what is your sense of this yeah reboot might be a bit of a strong word um certainly on a civilizational level i mean i we can't really go back to uh, to square one uh, culturally speaking Certainly on a, uh, on a more local level uh, point you emphasized, and that's one thing I, I very much uh, love about the United States is our sense of localism, um, I mean, which just partly, is, of course, um, uh, due to the fact that we're a very, um, uh, very heterogeneous country in many ways, culturally and ethnically and so on. But I do like this uh, sense of localism, the fact that I can travel across this country and, and find all different kinds of cultures and where places where one wouldn't even know that Washington, D.C. exists. Um, and and I think that's something that's much harder to find in in Europe, even in Germany, which has a nominally federalist system. They're not really federalist because they all agree with each other, so they're they're federalist in name only. Whereas here, there is genuine federalism in the sense that we really do have all these all these um, different cultures, which of course can also be um, a source of neo fragmentation. So it's not an unmitigated good. It has a it has a sinister side to it, of course, in the sense that it does lead to um, to sharper splits between various factions but it has that positive side as well uh, that one and just uh, to, just one point Benedict, like yeah. disbanding any hope of unmitigated goods i think is is um, one of the great benefits of your account here it's like i'm not talking oh. about like how do, does everything turn out good not at all like right, right. great no thank you and uh, i'm glad to hear you say that because that's another thing i was criticized for from a bit of a conservative direction I had an interview with a fellow philosopher. Um, it was a good interview. Uh, we had a good discussion. But one one point that he took issue with was that I sort of refused to say that this particular thing or that particular thing is a good, and that's it, and that's the end of the story. And I because I always felt that you know the situation is always a little more complicated than that. Uh, and this is actually um, to uh, I say a lot of good things about the United States here, but one negative thing about the American mentality. Uh, is that we, uh, which is a, which is um, a manifestation of the sort of American optimism and and a desire, the, the Hollywood desire for a happy ending, the fact that we always have to have the good and we always have to have the ultimate solution. This is a very American thing, and and people, can, can, Europeans by and large, uh, are more tolerant of the fact uh, that I say that well, there is no absolute uh, perfect exit and and happy ending. Uh, whereas yeah, America- we, we try to avoid uh, final solutions these days. Yeah. <laughs> My God, you are, what the hell? <laughs> I'm Jewish, so if, if I'm laughing, you're allowed to laugh as well. <laughs> vulgar, again, vulgar. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's our Jewish uh, self-deprecating humor that has allowed us to survive for all this time, right? So yeah, so this is a bit of an American weakness, I think. Um, but, um, but to get to whatever positive things can be extracted, I think localism is an, is an important issue. Um, the one thing, um, and I think we're seeing that to some extent right now, again, I, it's hard to talk about a civilizational level because on a very, if, if we're talking about the decades, I think it's easier to see positivity than if we're talking about centuries, right? Because yeah. even, even good stories that we see now developing in the grand scheme of things don't necessarily amount to all that much. Of course, the same 
can be said for negative stories as well. But there is, of course, such a thing as an alcophobic uh, overreach, which then leads to a backlash. And one sees this now, even in Sweden. I mean, you, you uh, both, I'm sure, know this better than I do. So you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But I had the impression that in the 80s in Sweden, I mean, I was only a small child, but one basically could not be a conservative. Whereas now, if people say that one is a conservative, it's it's more accepted. Yeah, yeah no, uh, it's a position for sure. And it wasn't in the 80s, not at all. Right. I'll just add the fact that uh, I think that one of the most interesting conservative think tanks in, in Sweden now is named just that, Oikos. Right. I heard about them recently. Exactly, yeah. Which uh, I was in touch with uh, one of the people there, actually. Yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a fitting name, certainly. And so I think one sees that backlash um, in other European countries as well. Now here in the United States, there is also. I mean, Donald Trump himself, of course, was a backlash. But one sees it on smaller cultural levels as well. The fact that people no longer want to have certain cultural diktats of the ruling elite shoved down on them. And that was not the case a few years ago, but now sort of people are just sort of fed up. So that's something positive that can be taken out of it, I think. Overreach certainly is one thing. The the more negative thing that can also have a, a positive effect in this sense is, of course, that this continued weakening will unfortunately lead to geopolitical troubles. And I think we see this already now. That, and of course, in and of itself can have the effect where uh, Western people sort of rally and come together and sort of realize that, okay, they actually do have something worth uh, standing up for. Now, that, of course, is not the kind of solution that anyone really desires because, I mean, I, I don't want um, a major war so that we could just stop being ogophobic. Obviously, nobody wants that. But those are those are things that can certainly alter, if you will, the trajectory. Maybe not alter the trajectory because ultimately such such backs and forth, such setbacks in the trajectory take have taken place in various civilizations too. But at least it means that the civilization, the the helical movement is not smooth, right? It it is helical, but it also contains little zigzags, if you will, mm. and so uh, various conflicts and and backlashes and so on can be can be part of those uh, zigzag of that zigzagging pattern in which we realize that we do have things to be grateful for and that uh, we should take care of our uh, heritage of the, in spite of the ochophobic onslaught. But ultimately, I do believe that such positive results will be more on a um, more on a local level uh, than, uh, than on a national level. Though, again, we'll see. I mean, th- this goes beyond party politics, but it can also mm-hmm. be expressed in party politics in the sense that, uh, as I mentioned, Donald Trump is is part of the backlash. And of course, that is a backlash on not on a local but on a national level. Uh, yeah. So it may ha- happen on that level as well. So we'll see. But I don't think I don't think that our society has uh, said its final word yet. But on that point, I'm sure Carl, Carl wants to come in here as well. But like on the geopolitics, that one of yeah. the issues of whether or not it's 250 years that we talked about earlier that is that is the course of the cycle, or or if it's longer, uh, or, or perhaps even shorter. But the fact that you have in the People's Republic of China a political elite that thinks in terms of, if not 60, then like even like longer time periods. And there is, if, if perhaps both of you want to push back here, but I simply do not see that generational mentality in the ruling elite at the moment. And, and then the question is wh- whether you could have an elite formulated around the long-termism of societal challenges. If nothing else, for the simple point of the geopolitical necessity of thinking like that, because frankly put, your enemies are thinking like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, and that's just part of our policy. Part of the problem of our politics, of course, is that we don't think long term. The, the Chinese are much better at that. Uh, that goes back a little bit to the historical sense, of course. I mean, the Chinese view themselves, uh, I believe, as, uh, 
as one long uninterrupted civilization, basically since ancient times, which we don't really have in the same sense. In the same sense, maybe the Greeks have it, but uh, they're not geopolitically very relevant. We don't have that same sense, and so we don't think in such long terms. And partly, of course, the democratic system in general. One politicians are worried about the next election and not, you know, not beyond what's going to happen four years later. Whereas a monarch, a king, or or an absolute ruler of some kind, of course, he's he wants to bequeath his nation to his son or to his chosen successor, and so that helps develop a longer historical sense uh, than somebody who knows that his successor might very well be somebody of the opposite party, somebody he doesn't care about. Uh, and so that kind of robs us of that sense of uh, stewardship uh, that the Chinese probably have uh, to a greater extent than we do. And, mm. and that sense of stewardship helps the Chinese, um, th- that longer um, s- historical sense helps them in in trying to avoid our mistakes and to... Uh, to study the West and to sort of see where we where we have gone wrong and and um, to try to avoid making the same uh, uh, mistakes. My book is coming out in Chinese pretty soon, actually. And <laughs> I asked the publisher when they got the contract, why do the Chinese care about this? I mentioned China, I think, only once. And it's because they, 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 they according to them, they want to learn to avoid our mistakes. I mean, not that I think that, you know, President Xi is going to have the book on his bedside table, exactly. But but still, that that's uh, you know certain Chinese intellectuals. I guess they they want to learn from our mistakes. I don't think they are as likely to commit our mistakes anyway, because as we've talked about today, and as I talk about in the book, democratization uh, and the sense of intellectual egalitarianism and so on is a big part of the nexus of Okafobia. And of course, they have that in much much lesser measures than smaller measures than we do. So, which is another reason why uh, why Eastern uh, peoples have not been as prone to orcophobia as we have here in the West. But um, that is, um, yeah, the, the geopolitical ramifications of orcophobia and, and of our internal weakening like this can truly be enormous. And we see this already now because, I mean, if the United States were as were as strong in favor of their own beliefs and culture and and as insistent on its world hegemony as we were. 40 or 50 years ago, the Chinese would now not be considering taking Taiwan, for example. But of course, it's only our own internal weakening that will uh, that will allow the Chinese to dare to take that step. Hmm. Uh, and so when Chinese, uh, when American power um, not necessarily collapses, but, but certainly grows a lot weaker through our internal weakening, uh, then of course, that will allow all different kinds of conflicts to break out around the world. And I think actually, by the way, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is another example of that. Now, that's not an anomaly in history. When people say that NATO provoked uh, Putin to take uh, Ukraine, I think that's a, a lot of rubbish, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Putin is doing what uh, Russians have been doing since Ivan the Terrible. I'm going to say Peter the Great, but actually since Ivan the Terrible. And it's, it's somebody like Boris Yeltsin, who's actually an anomaly in, in Russian history. Uh, mm. Putin is yep. just like Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and so on, just that he's less competent than they are, fortunately. But that's what the Russians have traditionally always done. But uh, certainly a strong America, one that had not been weakened by orcophobia and neo-fragmentation and so on, uh, could have um, been a deterrent to that. Uh, but so the geopolitical aspect, it's not one I, I only touch upon it a little bit in the book, but it's certainly a very, very serious. And that's why this is not just a cultural issue. It has very serious ramifications in the real world. To take another example, if I may, uh, in the Middle East, the conflicts between Israel and the Palestinians and, and other yep. Arab states. One reason why uh, the Palestinians and, and various um, other Arab states feel emboldened to do what they do is that the West is that they know that the West, which has stopped believing in its own values, values that are represented by Israel, are um, not going to come to Israel's defense in the same way and, and are going to criticize Israel for certain responses and that for certain reactions to uh, terrorism and that emboldens 
terrorists to take certain steps because they know that the West are not unified in favor of their own, in favor of their own values. So the um, the fact of the matter is that people die literally because of uh, orcophobia. And this can sort of be be taken to a uh, 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 regional or even like national level in 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 Europe because I think that the problem that sort of permeates Western sort of mindsets uh, clashing with uh, be it either uh, Russian, uh, Chinese, or 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 uh, sort of Muslim clan based sort of thinking would be that you know us having lost the sort of sense of the sacred leads them to believe, you know, what the hell do you have to de- uh, defend? You're only in it for the money or, you know, uh, some arbitrary reason. You're not going to be here for for very long. It's as sort of witnessed in, in Afghanistan and, and, and in Iraq as well, where American and, and NATO forces were, were very much operating on a timetable of, of sort of materialism and, and, and the the population said, "Well, we have a historical understanding about these things. You know, we we know this region. We know how many empires have been through, and this is not only true by Afghanistan, but obviously as well, Iraq as well. And then trying to get these people to conform into sort of a quarterly economy and sort of, or even the mindset of you know, having, a, you know, you can't do propaganda. You can't be, build things. And this is what sort of separates us from the Victorians, and not to." Not to romanticize colonialists of the past, but you know the upper classes of France and and and, and Great Britain in, in the 1800s had a better understanding of the uh, Afghan and Iraqi mindset and all the Algerian mindsets than we have today. And the the thing is that our interactions with these these cultures are much more profound than they ever were back then. But that mm. uh, you can chalk that up to post-colonialist studies if you want but it's also a fact that we have lost the sort of sense of not only ourselves but of history and of of the sacred hence we cannot contend with the mindset that sort of has a sense of these things and i I, and and i'm not i'm not as pessimistic on china from a western standpoint that i think many people are because i think their demographics would probably ruin them before they can do any major harm but that will be in harm in itself you know and 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 that sort of romantic view that you know once russia is defeated in ukraine they will never rise from the ashes of whatever collapse that will bring it's 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 obviously not true and hence you need that and to borrow your term benedict tragic sense of history which is very much forgotten for myself i mean what i've rediscovered it is mainly those two traditions, you know, the sacred and the sort of ancient tradition of, of the ancient tradition of tragic view of history and the long view, but also the sort of sacred view of certain things in life. And uh, I think it's the combination of those two knots. And I don't think it's a magic formula, but uh, Yuan, I think, is, is more instrumental in, in the sort of application of these things than I am. And I'm a bit more, you know, conservative in, in, in a personal sense because I think you know it's a, it's a it's a matter of, of, of education and of the heart and and it sort of doesn't go well on a slogan board uh, it's hard to sloganize try to view history read the city these but yes that, that's my solution at least I mean I, I think mm. at, as much as anything that's, that's a counter to even the geopolitics of this question mm. no I think that's a very good connection the sacred with the fact that I mean for your example of Afghanistan for example that if you if you if you if you still believe in the sacred, then yes, you're going to view this present situation in a different sense, and and you're going to realize that you have this long tradition to uh, to look back at and to and to protect, and that can also help help a person or help a people be more patient, certainly than uh, 
than as you said than than when you than if you're just thinking about the next uh, election or the next balance sheet or whatever. But on on this point of Thucydides uh, that you brought up, Kalle, or uh, to paraphrase, what we owe to the Greeks to have some sen- the realist sense of w- how things would develop. I can agree with you that my view of this is a, perhaps a bit more instrumental. But I think coming back to the personal question we wanted to ask you, Benedict, that also approaches this sacred approach that the fact that you you yourself are atheist, but also I think read somewhere that the training, exercise, and taking care of yourself is very important. I guess the question here, approaching the sacred, is what do you what do you exercise for? Like to whom <laughs> to, to reveal the, the paraphrasing of Nietzsche earlier? To whom does your victories belong? Because to yeah. a Christian, it is obvious that there is no king kingdom without the king. But to whom do you give praise? Um, well, you mentioned Nietzsche, and that's actually um, would probably be part of the answer, uh, the, namely the aesthetic phenomenon. So Nietzsche says, uh, as I'm sure you know, that the um, it's only as an aesthetic phenomenon that the uh, that the world and that human life are justified. And I do subscribe to that quite a lot. Now, of course, one does have to have a uh, fairly broad view of what the aesthetic needs. Um, it's obviously not just that which is purely physical, be- physically beautiful. Um, the aesthetic. It's more the Greek sense of beauty, um, which involves um, the morally good and, and so on. But the the sense of um, the aesthetic sense is certainly a big part of it. And, and the Greek ideal, I mean, since you mentioned exercise, I basically, for me, it's I don't really distinguish between between so much between these various activities of, of my own personal life, because to me, they all go toward the aesthetic sense. So when I walk into the gym, I do it with pretty much the same mindset as when I read Homer or Aristotle or or Shakespeare or what have you. Um, it's all really part of the same thing, namely being the most, the best and the most aesthetic, again, broad sense, aesthetic version of me that I can be. And to me, that all goes together. I mean, I read the Iliad as, in, as a little boy uh, in Swedish translation uh, at that time. Uh, but to me, that was clear from the beginning that that was what it what one should be. Uh, not every person in the Iliad. Of course, Achilles is, is not a good person. Well, actually, neither is Odysseus, come to think of it. But um, there, there, there are a lot of bad people as well in there. Uh, but the, the sense that one should develop every aspect of one's person uh, to, um, to, its, to its greatest point, I mean, to, well, to whatever point possible. And uh, now that, of course, means different things for different people. I'm not, you know, not everyone should do what I do. Different people have different strengths. But, but to me, it's really all part of the same thing. Exercising and reading and writing and so on, it's really just part of being an aesthetic person. Um, and so that's what I try to do. Kalle, uh, do you have any other areas which we failed to bring up? Uh, no, but I'd, I'd like to tease something out of Benedict that may benefit our readers as well. Uh, apart from your from your own book, uh, available, I, I guess, in fine bookstores almost everywhere, could you recommend a summer read for our listeners and, and us as well? A summer read? Uh, interesting question. Well, there is so much, of course. Um, you mean something a little more contemporary, I suppose. Well, I mean, maybe what's on your uh, nightstand at the moment or something. Uh, what's on my nightstand at the moment is uh, one volume of uh, Rilke's poetry and uh, one of the volumes of uh, Proust's uh, major novel, actually. They're currently on my nightstand. Proust, uh, to me, is uh, the third greatest poet in world history after Homer and Shakespeare. He's technically, I mean, I can suppose officially, academically not a poet, but a prose writer. But to me, he's the greatest poet of the modern era, uh, really. Um, well, if you count Shakespeare as the modern era, the second greatest. Because uh, Proust 
Uh, actually, maybe Proust is not a bad recommendation for summer reading uh, or for reading in general in the pres- in the context, I mean, of the present of the present discussion, because I actually mentioned Proust briefly in the book, namely in the sense that uh, in the book, as we've discussed a little bit today, I try to draw connections between things that might seem unrelated to each other. I mean, I mentioned as an example, uh, Hellenistic sculpture and Facebook and how both in some way kind of are illustrative of the ochophobic trajectory. Um, even though they really seem to have nothing to do with each other. And something I love about Proust is that he um, takes things that seemingly have no connection to each other whatsoever and somehow makes them reflective of each other through his various, mm. uh, through his various metaphors or, or similes, uh, showing that this thing here is actually like that. Mm. And, and, and in that sense, it gives one a very broad view, I think, of the world because of the way he always connects things that that uh, he, he sort of shows how different phenomena are reflected in, in each other and in other phenomena. And that's something that I very much love about him and appreciate because it kind of, I don't want to sound like a hippie here, but it kind of makes us see more the connection between various things. And, um, and I think that's something really beautiful. Now, Proust, of course, is, um, it's a bit of an acquired taste. The first 100 pages or so of Proust, I, I could barely stand, but I'm, I'm glad I stuck with it because then uh, that, uh, that grew into love eventually. And I, I think it would be the same for a lot of different readers. But uh, yeah, that's, um, I don't, um, there are probably not a lot of philosophy books um, I would recommend. I mean, I love Nietzsche. Uh, it's a good summary. My favorite book by Nietzsche is, uh, I think in Swedish it's called Den Glada Wetenskap und die Fröhliche Wissenschaft, yeah. the gay science, science in England. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that is probably, I think, the, my favorite book by Nietzsche because it's it's aphoristic, meaning that it's um, so it's fairly easily digestible. I mean, I one could read the genealogy of morals is a little more, um, you know, these long essays. So um, it's um, maybe not quite as as appropriate for summer reading while lying on the beach. But uh, the gay science is great because one can sort of pick it up and and just read a few pieces of aphorisms and then kind of continue at any time. And it's it's great reading because there's so much. There is so much, so many life wisdoms in there about all different kinds of things, about love and history, and uh, and it's uh, it's a good beach read. So since we're in June, I, I realize now I want to basically do a Nietzsche version of your your book Western Self Contempt. It feels <laughs> like it would would go into the the phallic mode. But on your po- point of uh, Proust, that like as you mentioned also yourself, that like Greece's Homer and Britain's Shakespeare. His his way of connecting things or the the philosophical poetic view in a way seems like the perfect antidote to whether or not one suffers from degrees of oikophobia. That in a way, by connecting the past and futures and drawing causal links with all other things, mm-hmm. then saying that it's a tragic view is actually uh, a bit too negative. I think like philosophical poetic, like seeing the beauty in it, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Absolutely. No, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And it's it's. Uh... That's why I said I didn't want to sound like a hippie because it's sort of you know we're all one that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, but it's uh, it definitely is um, something that I think, especially in polarized political climates where everyone hates everyone who's a little different. Uh, I think Proust really uh, brings uh, brings everything together and and sort of shows how everything is is a network of things that everything is connected to everything else in some way or everything maybe not so much everything is connected to everything else as everything is reflected in everything else is maybe a better way of putting it and um, and i think yeah that that can certainly be an antidote to uh to some of the more uh rabid forms of political expression that we see today benedict thank you so much for uh joining us it's been a pleasure stimulating fascinating thank you so much benedict for coming on our show thank you to you both <laughs>